Our Gospel reading for this Lord's Day is John chapter 11. Pay close attention, this is God's holy word. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he, he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Martha came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open our ears and our hearts today to receive the promises and the hope and the words of Jesus our Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen. Over the years that I have served congregations as a pastor, I've had the sober honor of presiding over the funerals of many dear saints and a few unbelievers along the way. There's a critical difference between the two funeral services, that of a believer and that of someone who did not profess faith in the Lord Jesus. For the funerals of those who seem to die as unbelievers, I always make a point of presenting a crystal clear simple presentation of the gospel. I say we all die. We're all sinners. We're all going to stand before God's judgment. We all need Jesus. We all must repent and believe. But throughout the service, I do whatever I can not to say things that are untrue. I don't think it's profitable to preach someone into heaven by listing all of their accomplishments. Though, certainly I know that they might have called on the name of the Lord in their final moments of life. The Holy Spirit could have given them faith, and we don't know about it. We, we don't see it. And they could very well be resting at the feet of Jesus now. We just don't know. That uncertainty, however, is unsettling and compounds the grief of losing them. But services for believers are very different. When we Remember the life of a believer. The sorrow is real. The pain of losing a loved one is acute. However, there's always a solid bedrock of rejoicing underneath the pain. For one, we know that they're in a safe place. They're with Jesus. They have life beyond the grave. But more than that, they have even more life beyond heaven. I always make a point to make frequent and explicit references to the resurrection of Jesus and in the hope of our own bodily resurrection. All of the promises God has given us of eternal life don't terminate in heaven, but we know that we have life beyond life. We have embodied life to look forward to even beyond heaven in the resurrection. Now, it may be strange to talk about funerals on a day like this when, quite frankly, we all need some encouragement, but stick with me. Because in today's gospel reading from John 11, the events surrounding the death of Lazarus, though they take place in a graveyard, they're full of life and hope and cheer. 
And there's this amazing reversal of events that should encourage us all to always trust in the Lord. This is the chapter where Jesus says, I am resurrection. I am life. So to accept Jesus is to believe in not only his resurrection, but to accept our own resurrection and our own life in him. We are part of him, and we participate in his resurrection. And therefore, we have a claim to more life beyond the grave and beyond heaven. When the chapter opens, Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, whose house he probably stayed in several times whenever he was near the city of Jerusalem. Mary and Martha pop up a few times here and there in the Gospels. John reminds us here that Mary was the one who anointed Jesus with that precious oil of spikenard. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live in the tiny town of Bethany, which is only a short walk from Jerusalem. However, in this chapter, Jesus is a good distance away from Bethany. In the last part of chapter 10, we read that he is on the other side of the Jordan River. That The river was 20 miles away from Bethany, and Jesus is beyond that. So he's not in the neighborhood when these events happen. The sisters send word to Jesus saying, Lord, your beloved friend is sick. Now, there are two things we can gather from that. That whatever Lazarus has come down with is serious, and they want Jesus to heal him. They don't outright ask Jesus to come heal him. They just say he's sick, knowing that Jesus will probably want to come. Now, the Lord's response to this might sound cold or callous or indifferent. Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death. But we know that Lazarus does die. In speaking this, however, when Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, Jesus is speaking in an ultimate sense. In an ultimate sense, he's going to be okay. The immediate outcome of God's will for Lazarus is that he is going to die, but the ultimate goal for him is that he is going to live. So it's not unto death in the sense that death is not going to reign over this situation, but the glory of God is going to reign over this situation. The Son of God is going to be glorified through it. And so Jesus lingers two more days where he is. Jesus doesn't say, we're on our way, stay put. No, Jesus just stays where he is. And he stays there. As he stays there, Mary and Martha are going to watch their dear brother die. We get the note immediately after that, that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we know that Jesus wasn't unconcerned. Jesus wasn't being rude. Jesus wasn't being careless. He loved them. And every action he takes comes out of that love. And it's not in opposition or contradiction to that love. Jesus loves them so much that he doesn't come right away and help. How many of us are experiencing that same kind of love from Jesus right now? That he loves us so much that he's not coming right away to help. That seems so out of place. That seems so incongruent. He loves us so much he's not helping. But it reminds us that what we define as love and what we expect to see as an expression of love is often very different from what the Lord Jesus defines as love himself. You see, he doesn't always answer our prayers right away. And often he doesn't answer our prayers the way we would expect that he should answer them, and so we assume that we must have been forgotten by him, or maybe that he really doesn't love us, or more often we get this idea that we've done something wrong to upset him, that we don't deserve his love, 
that we haven't done something right. We haven't hit the right combination of obedience and faith to move him to action. But you see, that's obviously not the case here. They call for Jesus, and he loves them. He loves them so much that he doesn't come. He doesn't come because he has something so much better in mind, not only for them, but for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. All throughout the gospels, Jesus is moving on his own schedule. When people make requests of him, even his own mother makes requests of him, Jesus often says, no, it's not time yet. Jesus chooses his own time to move, and he chooses his own time to act because he's orchestrating a bigger set of events, wherein he's not going to lay down his life until he's ready to do so, and when he does lay down his life, it's going to be freely. He's not going to be coerced, and it all ends up perfectly, even though there are places along the way where people ask him, what are you thinking? And we still do the same thing. We have a need, and we pray and pray and pray and pray and work, and we feel like we're doing everything on our end, and yet we still don't see the desired result. We're actually trying to do good. We're trying to please the Lord, and we still aren't seeing the results we want to see. And we say, why doesn't the Lord do something about this? What are you waiting for, Lord? What are you thinking? And he shows us over and over and over again, I've got a plan. Plan for my glory, and I love you, and those two things are not at odds. They are the same thing. I have a plan for my glory, and I love you. Just wait and see and be patient and faithful. This story reminds us that we can present a need to the Lord, and sometimes his answer is wait. And here in this chapter, Jesus waits for two days. What is he doing all that time? Well, put that on the shelf for now. We'll come back to that. What is he doing? Well, after time for waiting is up, Jesus decides it is time to go, and he tells his disciples that they are going to Judea. He doesn't say Bethany. Now, that's the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. He doesn't say we're going to Bethany. He says we're going to Judea. That's the territory that contains Bethany and Jerusalem. And here's another one of those, those times I just mentioned. The apostles say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? The last time you went there, the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going back? And then Jesus' answer to them is a little bit cryptic at first. If you look back to verse 9, he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does he mean by that? Well, there are a couple of layers to this. First, he's saying, You know, Guys, you have nothing to fear as long as you're with me. I'm the light, and the only way you're going to know where you are going is if you follow me. If you try to steer yourself by your own understanding, you're going to trip. You're going to fall over because you'll be in the dark. But stick with me, and even though things may not make sense to you right now, you're going to be okay in the end. And then secondly here, there's this undertone of confidence. You don't have to fear that the authorities are going to take advantage of us because we have nothing to hide. What we do, we do in the light, right out in the open. We aren't sinning, we aren't sneaking around, which means that there is never any peril in doing what the Lord tells us to do. We are always going to be okay. It's going to work out. The only time that we are ever going to be in any real danger is if we decide we're not going to be obedient to the Lord. But if you are determined to do what God says, 
you are never going to be in ultimate peril. You're not going to be on your own. And that's what Jesus is communicating to them. Now, after laying down this principle, Jesus goes on to explain that Lazarus was dead and that his death was in part for the strengthening of their own faith. He says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Even when we are left scratching our heads and when we get sick with worry, the Lord is pleased by the working out of his sovereign will. And so now the disciples are convinced that they should join Jesus, go back into the belly of the beast, so to speak, go back to the place where people have tried to stone Jesus. Even Thomas makes this very Eeyore-like statement, well, let us go too, that we may die with him. If he's going to die, well, then we'll die too. And he goes along with the others. When Jesus gets to Bethany, he finds that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, let's think about the timeline. If it took a day for the messenger to find Jesus, and if Jesus waited for two days, and it took him another day's travel to get to Bethany, that's four days. Now, it doesn't sound as if Jesus could have made it there in time to save Lazarus to begin with. Lazarus might have died the same day that the messenger was sent off. So again we ask, why did Jesus wait for two days? Once again, hold on to that. Hold on to that question. When Jesus gets to Martha, she doesn't scold him. That's not her tone. She just says, if only you had been here, he would not have died. If you hadn't gone off to begin with, Lord, if you had stayed with us, he would still be alive. Later, Mary is going to say the very same thing. And how often do we ask that question? If only, if only. If only I had closed the gate behind me, I wouldn't be out here in the dark with a flashlight calling for that dog. If only I had studied harder for that test, I could have passed it. If only I had taken Carrie Parkway instead of Maynard, I might have avoided that car accident. If only I hadn't married this person or taken this job or moved to this city. If only, if only, if only, and you have the sickening sense of what you should have done, and in that one decision you had a, cho a, a chance to avoid disaster. And then you think about all the wonderful ways your life would have been different if only you had done something different back then. At root, this is folly. This is covetousness. This is the opposite of contentment. Because life is not a bad science fiction time travel movie. You don't have a chance to go back and do things differently. You don't have an opportunity to go work things out so you would end up in what you think would be a better spot. That's a complete fantasy. And if we indulge that fantasy, we can get kind of stuck in an infinite loop of pity and regret and just stay there and just dwell on it. Much rather than uh, dwelling on what could have been, much better than that, thinking what might have happened, Jesus calls Martha to lift up her head and look at the future. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she thinks, okay, I know, those are just nice words that you say to a grieving sister. I, I know he's going to rise again on the last day. We all know that. Yes, there is that, Jesus says, but there's so much more. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Not only is there resurrection and life on the last day, but there is life now. Because Jesus says, I am resurrection, I am life, and I have come into the world. I'm not here to make faint promises of someday. I'm here to bring you into the new creation right now. And what Jesus says here is game-changing. It means the resurrection isn't just a mere doctrine. Resurrection has a face. Resurrection has a name. 
To be bound to Jesus by faith, to be united to him, is to share already, now, in the life which is beyond death. We don't have to wait until we die to get to the good stuff. We have life right now. Our lives today are meaningful and purposeful and relevant to God's will for all creation. And when we die, that is just a door to more life. As Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he die, though he may die, he shall live. So our future resurrection isn't an afterthought or a footnote or a strange bit of theology. It is the hope that though our bodies and spirits will be temporarily ripped apart, we will be joined again with sinless, perfect bodies and live in an eternal world. And what this means then is that the goal of the gospel, the goal of the cross, the goal of the work of Jesus is not simply to pluck souls up and take them off to a happy place, but to redeem the entire cosmos, to transform man, both body and soul. And so Jesus says to Martha, I am resurrection. I am life. Do you believe this, Martha? And she replies, Yes, Lord, I believe you are Messiah. You are the Son of God who's come into the world. Martha runs and gets her sister and brings her to Jesus. And Mary says the same thing that Martha did. If only, if only, if only you had been here. When Jesus sees her weeping and the other people with her weeping, still in deep sorrow for their dear friend and brother who's now been dead for four days, Jesus groans in the spirit and is troubled. And he asks them to show him the grave. And when he gets there, Jesus weeps. It's not real easy for me to cry. I'm not a real weepy person, typically. But if I see someone I love crying, especially if it is a woman I love who is crying, my wife, my daughter, my mother, if I see one of them crying, I have a pretty difficult time holding it together. When they weep, I weep. No doubt Jesus is in something of a similar spot. He wasn't weeping because he didn't know what was going to happen next. He's not weeping because he's full of despair. He's not weeping as those who have no hope. He is genuinely moved by the sorrow of the people around him. And the fact that his friend has died moves him to tears. This is important. Jesus wasn't God's attempt to play at being human. Jesus was flesh and blood man. When Jesus was a baby, he needed his diapers changed. When Jesus was a boy, he skinned his knees, he skinned his knuckles as a carpenter, he was hungry, he was thirsty, and when his friends are grieved, he grieves. And when he gets to the grave of his buddy, his friend Lazarus, he cried. Jesus knows personally what it's like to lose someone close. He lost his cousin, John the Baptist. When John died, remember, he took some time off. He goes away with his disciples to find some rest. We may assume that Joseph had to have died sometime during the life of Jesus because we only hear from his mother Mary when Jesus is an adult. So it's quite possible that Jesus knows what it is like to lose an earthly father. Now we see Jesus again at the death of a friend weeping. The one who made the sun and the moon and the stars stands weeping at a grave. But then he takes command over the grave and death itself. He tells them to take away the stone, and Martha protests, and you have to love the old 
King James Version's translation of this verse. Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. It's one of the best verses in the King James. He stinketh. She really doesn't know what he's up to here, but it doesn't seem right, because he stinketh. But Jesus calmly reminds her, don't you remember what I said? I said if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. So take away the stone. And then when they do, Jesus prays aloud, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now that's interesting. That sounds like something you would say after your prayer has been answered. Jesus thanks the Father for hearing him before he calls on Lazarus to come forth. Now why does he say this? Now remember I've asked you a couple of times, what was Jesus doing those two days? And I think from this passage we can gather that for those two days, there has been an ongoing conversation between Jesus and his father. From the moment Jesus finds out about Lazarus's sickness, and knowing how he is going to be with his friends, and, and how he's going there to help them, and he knew that, that doing that would carry him right back into the place where he had his most intense opposition, Jesus knew that going there and doing this was the beginning of the end. He knew that the whole time that, that he was on his way there, he knew that the time when he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for the world was nearing. And so this whole time he had been praying. Before he tells the disciples what was going on, before he left Bethany, before his conversations with Mary and Martha, he starts praying. He talks to the Father about his purpose in going back to Jerusalem because Jesus knows what's going to happen there. And at the same time, it seems as if he's been praying for Lazarus, praying that his body would be delivered from corruption, praying that when he got to the tomb, the body would be whole and complete and ready to be summoned back to life. And then when they take the stone away and he sees the crowd that was gathered, Jesus knew then already that his prayers had been answered. He knew that Lazarus was about to be brought back to life, and he knew that his own days of earthly ministry were numbered. That's when he boldly says, Lazarus, come forth! Matthew Henry wrote, if Jesus had just said, come forth, all the dead would have responded to his voice. But he calls Lazarus, his friend by name, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, dead for days, stumbles up out of the tomb, his movements constricted, face and body wrapped in cloth, and Jesus says, loose him and let him go. I'm sure that Mary and Martha had a ton of questions for Lazarus, questions that we would like to ask as well. There's some answers that I would like to have from Lazarus, but we don't get any of that information. The Holy Spirit doesn't preserve that for us, and so we can only speculate. Obviously, that's not what we're called to dwell on here. What we're being shown, though, is that this event was so earth-shattering, so groundbreaking, that there are only two responses to it. After the resurrection of Lazarus, you either believe that Jesus was the Messiah and you commit yourself to him and to his life and to his resurrection, or you are threatened by him. You just saw something that you can't explain. And out of the hardness of your heart, you reject any explanations, you reject any answers. And you know that this kind of person is operating on a level that you've never witnessed before, and he cannot be left to continue in this. So the critics of Jesus hatefully stir up the priests and the Pharisees. 
Let's pick up from verse 47. I want to read a few more verses. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. See, what's more important than life and resurrection to them is their national identity. It's more important that they have their place and their nation and their temple still stands and they accept their own Messiah, their own king. That's what's critical. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And that takes us right up to the events that we'll consider next Lord's Day on Palm Sunday. But what should we take away from this passage this morning? Well, first of all, this is a fitting illustration of what Jesus does for us in saving us. Obviously, it was also a sign to Israel. Israel's dead. Israel's in the grave. Israel is unclean. But Israel can be resurrected by the voice of Jesus. She needs to hear him. She needs to listen to him because she needs resurrection and life. And Jesus is there to give it to her. But for us as well, we are born dead in our sins. We aren't just a little bit sick in sin. We don't just have the sniffles in sin. We don't have a scratchy throat in sin. We are dead in sin. And Jesus takes all the initiative to come to us, just as he came to Judea at great peril to himself, as he went to Mary and Martha, as he went to the tomb. Every step of the way, Jesus follows the trail to a dead man. So in the same way, he comes to us and calls us out of death to give us life. And only when he calls us do we get up and rub our eyes and respond to him with faith. Jesus is the initiator in all of this. And in this, he's not like we are. We tend to think that when people don't receive us well, then they aren't worthy of our affection or attention. We think, you know, I would, I would love my wife and serve her if she would just appreciate me. but. I know that she's not going to appreciate me, so I'm not going to try. I'm not going to bud. We, we think it's useless to take the initiative to love someone we think is unlovable. But who is, un, is more unlovable than a dead man? I mean, he stinketh. How can you love him? But Jesus makes the first steps, as we are. Jesus makes the first steps toward loving the unlovable, knowing that the response isn't going to be there right away. Jesus has to stir up life. He has to stir up love. He has to risk his life to get there. But when he does the will of the Father, he's blessed with what he has asked for. Jesus takes the initiative. Lastly, as we see this story play out, while it looks like Jesus is stalling, while it looks like there's death and danger all around, while everything goes contrary to what men and women think Jesus should do, everything works out ultimately to the glory of God and the happiness of his people. Some people in the story want Jesus to come to them right now, but he doesn't. Some of them think it's insane to go to Judea, but that's where he goes. He does the opposite of what they want. They have to wait, and they don't get their way. Because the Lord is sovereign and all-knowing, sometimes we need to wait, and sometimes we need to not get our way, and we have to be okay with that. We must wait 
like Joseph waited in prison. We must wait like Moses waited tending Jethro's flock. We must wait like David waited in exile. While Jesus came to serve, Jesus is not our slave. He is not at our beck and call. He is the king, and we are the subjects. And he serves us like a king does, which means he serves us when he is ready to do, to do it and when it fits with his purposes. When we wait, we remember that. We often have to remind demanding children of this when they're asking and asking and asking and uh, taking, uh, making demands. Um, we have to say, who's the boss here? Remember, who's, who's the mom? Who's the dad? And they say, you are. Okay, yeah. Remember, who's the dad? Who's the king? Who's in charge? Who's the servant? Listen to Hebrews 6. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Did you hear that last part? Promises are inherited through faith and patience. That means sometimes we need to wait. And sometimes we need to not get our way. Getting overruled or outvoted or vetoed is good for us. Often we fight so hard to get our way and to prove our point and to argue our position that the fight goes way beyond the principle we're arguing for, and it all becomes just about winning the argument, just getting our way. But often the Lord puts us in our place, and we don't get our way. He doesn't come when we expect him to. He doesn't do the thing we want him to do, and that is sanctifying. That is good for us. It reminds us of our frailties, our sins how often we exercise bad judgment, how much we need the perspectives of other people, and ultimately it demonstrates to us that it is not our business to demand our way, but that what we want is the Lord's way. Whatever he has for us, that's what we want. Even if it means going through a trying time where we have more questions than answers, we know that there's glory and resurrection on the other side of that, that Jesus is going to call us up out of our graves and give us life. Father in heaven, please give us patience through this difficult time. Though we call on you to move and change and deliver and save, often you wait and you teach us patience and you don't always do what we expect you to do, but you're always doing it out of love and for your own glory. So help us to trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.